Hi Brickies, I'm Dominic, the last one standing with a kink for cannibalism. And I'm Kate, the resident phobia expert who also hears voices. And you're listening to Shit and Bricks. A podcast where we talk shit about stuff that scares us. Ripping a few laughs and survival tips along the way. As always, please subscribe, rate and review us. And don't forget to follow us on the socials at Shit and Bricks Podcast. Like the morning after a night on the curries and cans, here it comes. So drop your ducks, pop a squat and let's get into it. Get on your bike. When, where did get on your bike come from? On your bike? On your bike. Oh, I assume that there was some youths in a yard at one point in history and <laughs> somebody said, oh, piss off, just get on your bike. And they had a bike and they rode off. Is that is that what you're after? I guess that's all I'm after, but I thought it would be funnier. But Oh, sorry. <laughs> Have a good me pretty logical on your I'm bike. Just, I'm just spitting facts. <laughs> You're a teacher, that's why. You just know. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You're at the source of it. Hi, Kate. Hello, Dom. How do you do? I am all sorts tonight, as you could possibly tell. You're just all sixes and sevens. I think this is possibly the uh, most intense work week of my professional career. So I'm oh my just... Gosh. I'm all over the joint, so thank yeah. goodness it's not my week to talk. Um, oh, you can just sit back, relax, and let this story wash over you today. I'll just, I'll let it rip. I'm going <laughs> to, usually these are the ones that where one of us or both of us is yeah. a bit delirious, it turns. We turns go loose, exactly. And loose I am having a Canadian club tonight. It's my drink of choice, um, a Negroni. Wow. Yeah, no, it's not Negroni. It's just Canadian <laughs> Club. Um, I just made me think of that. What's your drink of choice? <laughs> Negroni. Um, Negroni. With a little bit of Prosecco. Yeah. Um, a sp- spagliato. A spagliato. A little bit of Prosecco in it. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Mine's just a Canadian Club and dry. <laughs> Enough about me, Kate. How are you? Oh, I'm well, thank you. I um, am having a great week. So life is good. We're taking charge. Uh, we're just doing what we need to do to get through. <laughs> Making shit happen. <laughs> Absolutely. But no, I'm well. All right. Well, shall we do a little? Yeah, let's do it. That's as high as I can go. I like it. Well. Well. Dominic. <laughs> Catherine. <laughs> I have received a voice note from you and I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I forgot about that. <laughs> I have an idea for a podcast episode. I'm a bit squirrely, but <laughs> the message that preceded did suggest you were, in fact, squirrely that day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's uh, divert the attention yeah, away. Moving on. Moving on. Um. As always, folks, please go follow us on our social media because we have so much fun and we oh, share such I, I might, you know, it's just one of those things. Every time I get a notification that we've posted a new reel, I know I'm in for a chuckle. We're yeah. just a couple of kooks. Get on board. Give us a follow at yeah. podcast. We're on everything, but we're really active on our um, TikTokies and, and, and TikTok. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Boom. 
Go find us there. And while you're at it, go look up our Patreon. I mean, it's all linked in our link tree, so you can mm-hmm. all find it in one hot spot. Um, but our Patreon, every week we we provide like bonus episodes. You get early access. It's just the coolest thing, and it only costs you like a couple of bucks. It's nothing. Yeah, do it. Get on it. Yeah, we love that. Um, and who's our boo pod for this week, Tom? Our boo pod for this week is Persons Unknown podcast. Um, it's all about unsolved true crime stories. So we've done a lot of like uh, paranormally stuff, but Persons Unknown is really quite spooky and eerie and they don't post as often. Like, you know, the stories are really rich and John, good old mate John, Hi John. is the host. So Awesome. Yeah, go check that out. And Kate, I totally forgot. Uh-oh. You know how this year is all about ratings and reviews? Yes. I just realized, obviously, you rate and review on lots of different, you know, streaming services, but I just checked out our Spotify rates and we've got over like almost 25 five-star reviews. That's awesome. Thank you to those people. Yeah. Thank That's you so real. much. We love it. Thank you all for participating. Mm. So I think that's probably it. Let's just wrap it up and okay. get into the story because that is the end of Hoskaboom. Oh, I have a big story for us today. Uh, I've got our regular episode stuff. I have a juicy Patreon bonus episode uh, continue on um, mm-hmm. at the end. I'm just going to keep my eye on the time, but as I was saying to Dom, I've written many, many pages, nearly double what we would normally do. But when I had a quick peek, I believe also has something to do with the fact I've had to adjust the font size <laughs> so that I can read it without squinting. Um, so I'm accepting that we deteriorate over time. I'm also accepting I am going to have to go to an optometrist soon. I thought I was going to get away with it, but it turns out I can no longer see well. Um, so that's upsetting. <laughs> okay. Hey, you don't have glasses. No, no glasses. Oh. Perfect 2020 up until three weeks ago. <laughs> so, oh, God. Well, the way I saw it is that, and I'll get this wrong, but one of my parents is short-sighted, one of my parents is uh, long-sighted. So I was like, well, bang, I get the best of both worlds. I got one eye each. So just that works out perfectly. Um, but to be perfectly honest, I am looking forward to some spectacles. I don't think I'll look too bad. I'm a fan of a sunglass. I'm a sunglasses gal, very Al Pacino of me. Um, but I'm okay with that. Yeah, look, I've I've got them. I forget to wear them. I should wear them more often. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. whatever. Aging is a privilege, as they say. Correct. Correct. Now, Dom, as yeah, as I was saying, this is a, a doozy of a story. I normally start us off with a phobia. I'm going to get us straight into it. I normally start us off with a phobia. However, what we're going to be talking about today are government experiments, which ah. we have touched on. Uh, you know, the Stanford uh, prison experiment that you have done an episode on. If you've not listened to that, go back and find it. Exceptional. These, as I usually do, are some bite-sized pieces of uh, human experiments that have been done under governmental control. Um, And I was looking up, you know, phobias of the government or phobias of, you know, things like that. And more often than not, phobias of the government was more around uh, voting and uh, <laughs> sure. democracy and being frightened to vote or being frightened or having a phobia of going to a place to vote. So that's not really what we're talking about today. But yeah. in my research, I was able to stumble upon an experiment that I wanted to share with you because I felt in the sense of government experiments, uh, this was a, a doozy. 
It was a yeah, There's story. so many to pick from. There's so. so many, but I'm going to open us up with the Little Albert experiment. Have you oh, heard yeah. of the Little Albert experiment, Dom? No. Who's All right. Little Albert? Little Albert. Okay, couple of key takeaways from this experiment. The Little Albert experiment was a controversial, controversial, strong <laughs> start, psychological experiment conducted by John B. Watson and his graduate student, Rosalie Rayner, at John Hopkins University. This experiment was performed in 1920 and it was a case study aimed at testing the principles of classic conditioning. Oh, now, that's, that's always a good, strong start. It's a strong start. Now, you might, you would have know, uh, know of um, Ivan Pavlov. Mm -hmm. Now, Ivan Pavlov showed the classical conditioning applied to animals, uh, but this study was around whether or not it also applied to humans. Uh, in a famous, though ethically dubious experiment, John Watson and Rosalie Rayner showed that it did. So the classic conditioning. Real quick, before I go into the story of Little Albert, I have a Pavlov story <laughs> for human conditioning that I want to share with you. And I okay. wonder if you've got one as well. But You probably have trained me to do something, Kate, and I don't maybe, even know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But human conditioning does work. Um, I was um, in a relationship many moons ago and we were very uh, health conscious. So with our cooking, we used a lot of uh, coconut oil yeah. to cook rather than an olive oil or something like that. The trick was we also used coconut oil for other Other things. activities. Yes. Yes. So it got to the point, I think, about six months into the relationship um, where we could no longer cook with <laughs> coconut oil <laughs> because we wouldn't, wouldn't want to cook anymore. Um, so that was a classic. We have loved ourselves in the kitchen <laughs> and we were not able to use coconut oil. So we switched to olive oil after that. Um, but that was one of my Pavlov stories. There's also the classic of um, putting your hair up in a ponytail uh, if you have long hair before yeah. you participate in yeah. activities that you would not want your hair to be in the way of. <laughs> I, hope <people laughs> and... are, I hope people are really catching the like <laughs> the innuendo here of what we mean by other activities. Wink, you know, wink. Yeah, that's right. That two people who love each other. <laughs> yes, very, very much. <laughs> that's special cuddles. Uh, yeah, but that was also something. So every time I would put my hair up in a ponytail, um, that was a situation. So I had to signals. do that. Yeah, yeah, signals. Pavlov, Pavlov. Um, so that's my my individual Pavlov story. Do you, <laughs> is there anything... I love how it's all based around. That, that, yes, yes, it was um, quite carnal. How about you, Dom? Does anything jump into mind when you think of any human conditioning? Oh, I'm sh I should think of like lots of things, but. Mm -hmm. It's okay if you haven't got one. I've got enough to go on with little Albert. So I'll I've... leave it. I'll leave it with you if you like. No, I mean, I've got some I just don't think I should share. Like, okay, they're probably fair. not yeah, okay fair. to share. Like, <laughs> I don't want to be recorded. Understood. Yeah. Yeah, understood. All right, back to little Albert. Now, at the outset of the study, Watson and Rayner encountered a nine-month-old boy named little Albert, a remarkably fearless child scared only by loud noises. No. After gaining permission from Albert's mother, the researchers decided to test the process of classical con conditioning on a human subject by inducing a further phobia in the child. So inducing a phobia through this oh. testing. 
Now, little Albert, nine-month-old infant, was tested on his reactions to various neutral stimuli. He was shown a white rat, a rabbit, a monkey, and various masks. Albert, described as, on the whole, uh, solid and unemotional, showed no fear of any of these stimuli. This was in the 1920s too, by the way, so some of the language around it is, uh, yeah, old-fashioned. However, what did startle him and cause him to be afraid was, and this is probably going to be any baby, but was if a hammer was struck against a steel bar behind his head. The sudden loud noise would cause little Albert to burst into tears. Absolutely. Fair enough. When little Albert was just over 11 months old, the white rat was presented and seconds later the hammer was struck against the steel bar. After seven pairings of the rat and the noise in two sessions, one week apart, Albert reacted without cry- with crying and avoidance when the rat was presented without the loud noise. Yeah. By now, little Albert only had to see the rat and he immediately showed every sign of fear. He would cry whether or not the hammer was hit against the steel bar and he would attempt to crawl away. This fear did begin to fade as time went on. However, the association could be renewed by repeating the original procedure a few times. Initially, Albert had no fear of the rat, but Watson and Rayner paired the rat's presence with a loud noise, causing Albert to eventually associate the rat with fear, even in the absence of noise. This fear also generalised to other white furry objects. The experiment demonstrated that emotional responses such as fear could be learned through association. Yeah. Five days later, Watson and Rayner found that Albert developed phobias of objects which shared characteristics of the rat, including the family dog, a fur coat, some cotton wool, and a Santa mask. This process is known as generalization. Yes. So not just the white rat. The little Albert experiment demonstrated that classical conditioning could be used to create a phobia. Now, as we are all aware, a phobia is an irrational fear that is out of proportion to the danger. Over the next few weeks and months, little Albert was observed and 10 days after conditioning, his fear of the rat was much less marked. Uh, This, you know, dying out of that learned response is called extinction. Mm -hmm. However, even after a full month, it was still evident and the association could be renewed by then again doing that process. Unfortunately, Albert's mother withdrew him from the experiment the day the last tests were made and Watson and Rayner were unable to conduct further experiments to reverse the condition response. To reverse it? Oh. Yeah. So they were, that was going to be the next step. So they were going to make him have a phobia, and then they were going to attempt to reverse it. Interesting. Like, obviously problematic up the wazoo. Yes, yes. You know, I think... I don't think anything in there is all that shocking or surprising to me. Like it makes perfect sense. I don't know how far you could claim that it's a phobia because it's not rational. Like, yeah, it's not an irrational. It's an association. It's a, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. But that was one of the experiments that I saw that I thought I'm going to open up with that one. Oh, poor fuck. I wonder what happened to little Albert. Now he drains him to pet store. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where he sells Santa masks and fur coats to try and get over his phobia caused by a steel bar and a hammer. I think that is also a really interesting point is that generalisation point of you could have had an experience maybe as a child and then you've later developed a phobia or a fear of something as an adult. Yeah, 
but yeah. those two things are not actually the same. Like what triggered it and what it results. What you're frightened of. Is different. It's because, Correct. yeah, it was white and fluffy. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's interesting. Right. All right. Now I want to get into the six most evil human experiments perpetrated by the U.S. government. Now, this is a focus on U.S. government. For our Patreon listeners, I will uh, trot across the globe to share some additional atrocities um, that humans have concocted in a governmental position. I read this article and got it from uh, All That's Interesting, which is one of my favourite resources to find kooky and weird stories. This article is by Richard Stockton, uh, and it was published in 2017, but it was updated in 2021. So if you want to, you know, if you miss something, want to read over it, go nuts. Here we go. Science science is hard and good science requires a lot of work to control variables and manage large sums of data. Medical science in particular usually calls for elaborate precautions to be taken, not just to ensure the accuracy of the data, but to protect the test subjects. People have rights after all, and it's highly unethical to subject them to drug trials against their will or to poison them without consent to a test or a theory. (laughs) Those constraints make medical research one of the hardest fields to work in since most experiments have to be done on animals and the findings are not necessarily applicable to humans. We have spoken about that before. Yes. Over the years, however, some American medical researchers have deliberately violated the rules to gain the inside track to scientific knowledge, usually at a horrific cost to the innocent people involved. The results of these human experiments were atrocious. Yeah, buckle Number up, folks. <laughs> one, here we go. This is the horror of mustard gas. It is a curious fact that after the horrors of World War I, chemical weapons seemed not to have been used during World War II. US military officials in the early part of World War II didn't know for sure that this would be the case, of course, and until 1943 or so, there was a legitimate fear among British and American leaders that Germany would turn to chemical weapons as the tide turned. This fear was a big part of the reason why the US Army used its own soldiers for human experiments to test the effects of mustard gas on otherwise healthy young men. Now, of course, nobody in their right mind would volunteer to have mustard gas tested on them. The gas, inverted commas, is actually a sticky, oily resin that causes chemical burns on exposed skin and uncontrollable bleeding in the lungs when it's inhaled. So it's not a pleasant little number. That's probably why the army didn't bother asking for consent from the soldiers that it exposed in Panama in 1942. (laughs) Yeah, I can't say I'm picking that pamphlet up. No. (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys feel like playing with a sticky, oily resin that causes chemical burns on exposed skin and uncontrollable bleeding in the lungs? Have we got the deal for you? Goodness. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah, that thought process of like, well, we just don't even tell them. But I love that. How how was that even an option in your head to go? Yeah. Well, uh, well, do we tell them? We just ah, don't tell them. Nah, don't tell them. Just, just get walk them in. up and smear yeah. some shit on their face. And be like, see what happens. Now, the purpose of the test was to work out how well mustard gas would work in tropical environments, such as the islands that the American soldiers would soon be fighting across in the Pacific. 
Perhaps as many as 1,200 recruits tested in small teams for several weeks were ordered to strip to the waist outside of a wooden chamber on the base grounds and then sent inside and doused with the chemical agent. It turns out that mustard gas actually works really well in tropical heat. (laughs) And according to one survivor, all of the men began writhing around and screaming in pain as the chemical burned through their skin. Some pounded on the walls and demanded to be let out, though the doors were locked and only opened when time was up. Though the men were treated immediately following the experiments, oh, good, they were threatened with military prison if they ever disclosed what had happened to anyone, including their own doctors later in life. When the story finally broke in 1993, more than 50 years after the test, only a few survivors could be located for compensation. The Pentagon is still officially looking for test survivors, the youngest of whom would now be 93 years old. Oh, a little late there, Dal. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think that it's a little late. And, and they I were doubt- just, yeah, yeah, they were just, they weren't rushing to, to find those test subjects. And what, what are the chances that they're even still alive? I mean, yeah. it sounds like they've, you know, a few things have probably things knocked have probably off happened. some years off there. Imagine <laughs> that, though. You go to your GP and you're like, I, look, Doc, I've got, I ne- I've got, the thing is, see, the I have a rash and <sighs> um, it's caused, I, there was oil, I was cooking a turkey. Uh, yeah. Thanksgiving, got oil all over my body. I have a rash and I need you to treat it. And then the doctor looks at them and is like, Oh, this stinks of mustard gas. (laughs) I told you to watch out for those Taduckans. They're dangerous. (laughs) Okay, so that is our first of our six. The next I want to talk to you about, Dominic, is the Guatemala syphilis experiment. I know this one. Of course Dom knows this one. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a heavy metal band, the Guatemala syphilis experiment. Yeah, I'd but listen. No. <laughs> I would. <laughs> Disease has traditionally been more of a threat to soldiers than any weapon of the enemy. The American military in World War II was no exception, and by 1945, hundreds of thousands of men had been disabled by a particularly embarrassing family of sicknesses, venereal disease. Mm. After the war, government scientists, along with researchers from Johns Hopkins, the Rockefeller Foundation, and one of the predecessor companies of pharmaceutical giant Bristol-Myers Squibb, set out to study the spread and effects of, among other diseases, syphilis and gonorrhea. Unfortunately, they chose unwitting test subjects in Latin America for their human experiments. Some of them were children at the Mm. time. Little is known about the Guatemalan VD studies because the research generated no papers for peer review and almost all government records were destroyed some years after the program concluded in 1956. We do know, however, that the project started with deliberate exposure of Guatemalan men to infected prostitutes. When that didn't spread the infections quickly enough, doctors from the project partnered with local physicians and inoculated patients with tinctures of infected material on the penis or by direct injections, sometimes to the spine. Children as young as eight 
were given shots that were later discovered to be in hot with STDs and their health was then charted. Some subjects were given penicillin, which was already known to be effective in treating both types of STIs, but others were left untreated to study the progression and damage caused by the infections. It's just shocking. (laughs) If you are at all in the medical field, how could you sleep at night? Yeah, it's a fair question. I understand the, the purpose around it in terms of testing to study to figure out you know, what happens and then how, you know, how to treat and, and that sort of thing. But I mean, it's my understanding that, that penicillin was already, they're, they're giving the patients penicillin, some of them. They're aware of something that can treat it, but they're just wanting to go that next step further and purposefully infect these people. I don't, I, in my right mind, I couldn't do that. Like, yeah, you sign the Hippocratic Oath, guys. Yeah, Hippocrates children? would be cross. What's yeah. the point in knowing what these do to children? Or, I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah. I, like, I, I agree, and I'm sure there's some medical professionals out there that just go, you people don't understand in order for us to properly treat things and understand, like, we've got to yeah. know certain things. I'm like, more. I get it, but yeah. you don't need to just lie to people and go alone. do this. Thing. Like, there's yeah. a line. Yeah. Okay. okay, the next experiment, human experiment, is the Manhattan Project's fatal radiation. While many know the Manhattan Project as the program that eventually produced the world's first atomic bomb, thanks guys, few realize that the project's project also sought to test the effects of radiation on human beings. Some of this research was conducted accidentally, as when project it was <laughs> whoops, whoopsie, uh, and project scientist Harry Dalian, I'm saying Dalian, it's D A G H L I A N, I like Dalian triggered a sudden burst of radiation from a plutonium core that he was working on and exposed himself to a fatal dose of gamma rays that killed him an excruciating 25 days later. No Hulk? No Hulk, unfortunately. The whole time he was languishing in the hospital, Dalian was covertly observed by medical researchers attached to the project to to chart his decline and death. I mean, come on, just give me give me an injection and put me out, folks. Like, right? Yeah, I know it's not going to end well for me. Just, yeah, let's just do it. Now, this was perhaps a bit ghoulish, but Dalian had exposed himself by violating safety standards and the observation didn't make his condition any worse than it already was. Other people wouldn't be so lucky. So that's their kind of, you know, he's he's got the poisoning. We'll just watch him. That's He can't get any worse. So let us study him before he carks it. That's their justification of that. Sure, sure, uh, sure, sure thing. As early as 1943, project staff suspected that some workers' physical ailments were related to their work. In the case of one worker, a woman suffering from kidney failure, an internal memo discussed whether or not to alert her to the potential cause, chronic exposure to radioactive polonium. The decision was made to conceal the facts, Later, with the help from universities of Chicago and California and from the military hospital at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, living human patients were injected with polonium and other radioactive elements to study the effect on their body. Project scientists delivered a batch of radiosodium in a crate to the University of Rochester Medical School, then took it out to the alfalfa field next door and loaded it into the sprinklers 
to study how it's spread through the environment and to work out shielding requirements to protect the students in adjacent buildings. Why? (laughs) Let people know. (laughs) I don't want to go to school if there's radiation in the alfalfa. I I don't. I just that sentence or that 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 paragraph just is that what am uh, I listening uh, to correct, right now? Correct. And this is legitty. Now, eventually, hundreds of people, including 57 mentally handicapped children in Massachusetts and more than 100 disabled adults in Chicago were fed or injected with plutonium, which holds the distinction of being one of the most dangerous substances in the world for human health. From 1951 to the early 1970s, the Manhattan Project later reorganised as the Atomic Energy Commission, gathered exposure data and tracked the fates, most of them really bad, of the unwitting test subjects. Many of the files on this research are still classified and therefore unavailable to potential plaintiffs in lawsuits. The idea seems to wait until the last test subject in the human experiment dies before releasing them. Given the nature uh, of the research, they might not need to wait a very long time. I just, I have less faith in the human, humans. Yeah, (laughs) I have less faith in the humans. I think too, I mean, granted, there is a lot more of a clampdown on this sort of stuff. A lot of this was happening at that end of World War I, World War II era. Um, you know, 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, still, that doesn't make it any less heinous. Yeah, and I would I would argue the fact that even today we, uh, we discuss certain topics. Yes. Like cultural or uh, sexual orientation or gender expression or anything where people still – talk to and refer to humans as less than yeah and it's a slippery slope before you just you know you you fall into the test subject category well you're just devaluing a human life there's uh, if you're going to engage in any sort of conversation where my my life is more important than your life or anything Mm -hmm. like that how we treat people I don't know if we're as evolved from that time as we think because it's really easy for us to sit here and go, how could you test this on humans or whatever? And I'm like, well, how do we treat, how do we treat uh, incarcerated people? How do we, anyway, sorry, rant. No, no, that's that's a-okay. But guess what I've got for you, Dom, as a little special treat, the second syphilis experiment for you. Oh, was that part of this photo? Oh, we'll find out. Uh, now, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Yeah. The Guatemalan studies may have been rough on the unwitting participants, but they were hardly unprecedented. By the time those human experiments began in 1945, another syphilis study had been underway for nearly 20 years. The Tuskegee study. The Tuskegee study pre- began with an uplifting idea to study and treat venereal disease, particularly syphilis, which ran to 35% infection rates among black American men at the time. Approval was granted in 1929 and initial research was highly ethical and saw the subjects treated with the best, but still not very good medicine available at the time. Things unfortunately went sour in 1932 when money ran out for the project and some cash strapped participants withdrew. 
project administrators managed to stay on, however, by seeking private research grants. This made the men in these human experiments potentially profitable as long as they were sick. When sulfur drugs were introduced in in the 1930s and then penicillin in 1945, science finally had a cure for syphilis. That would have meant shutting down the study, though, which is why researchers lied to the test patients and told them that they were getting treatment when, in fact, they were being studied to see how soon they went insane and died. Mm -hmm. In 1940, researchers intervened to prevent subjects being treated as part of the government's public health campaign. And later, on the, study, on the study, participants were steered away from the government's rapid treatment centres, which were set up specifically for black men in the South who had syphilis. The human experiments mercifully ended in 1972, some 43 years after the first men were enrolled, and Congress eventually voted for some compensation to the survivors, the last of whom died in 2004. It's not that... Long ago. No. All right. I'm going to keep ripping through because I don't want to miss any. Okay. The dioxin tests. No, not at all. I'm just, (laughs) I'm just going to keep on keeping on. The dioxin tests. In 1965. (laughs) 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 We can edit that out. In 1965, dermatologist Dr. Albert Kligman Uh, We have a picture of him on our socials. Um, He looks very smug, um, which makes sense because he would be. He got a hefty $10,000 grant to study various chemicals on behalf behalf of Dow Corning, Johnson & Johnson, and the U.S. Army. His particular brief was to observe how human skin reacts to harsh chemicals, a process known as hardening, though he also tested psychoactive drugs as well. The specific chemicals he was to test and many of the details about his work are lost in history. In 1981, it was discovered that all of his notes and records had been destroyed. Whoopsie. But we do know he drew test subjects from Holmesburg Prison in Pennsylvania where he described the inmates like so. All I saw before me were acres of skin. It was like a farmer seeing a fertile field for the first time. Uh, Red flag. Yeah. So link that quote to the picture on our socials and you'll see why. He just looks a bit cuckoo. I'm not a vengeful person, but sometimes you just hear people. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the chemicals that we know that Dr. Kligman was testing was dioxin, the active ingredient in Agent Orange. At the time, the military was crop dusting half of Vietnam with that stuff and people in the spray zones were exposed over and over. The Pentagon was interested in what would happen to them, as was Dow, the manufacturer of Agent Orange. To speed up his research in the human experiments, Dr. Kligman injected his victims with a reported 468 times the recommended safe dose of dioxin, which is known to work as a blister agent and a systemic toxin. His eventual findings, if any, are not known because all his shit magically disappeared. Yeah, I'm sure the people that got it died. Also disappeared, correct, off the face of the planet. Now, we also don't really know what happened to the prisoners that he poisoned. Their names were among the records that Kligman destroyed to cheat justice. Uh, In the event the doctor had the good taste to die from natural causes, 
before the inevitable lawsuit. So he never had to answer for what he had done. Ugh. Can go take a shit on his grave, though. Yeah, take a shit, Clegman. <laughs> We're going to take a shit. The military poison tests is the next on our list. We we're talking all about these toxins, these these poisons. As early as 1942, people in the War Department, sounds like just a thrill a minute, (laughs) whose job was to be paranoid about security, were worried about how wide open and vulnerable the the United States was. On their recommendation, President Roosevelt created America's first Biological Warfare Bureau officially to study the country's vulnerabilities and devise an appropriate response should Japan, Germany, or later the Soviet Union ever get the idea to spray some germs around the US. <laughs> makes sense. It makes sense. Sure. Uh, unfortunately, though, the Bureau's method of assessing vulnerability was to co- covertly attack those perceived vulnerabilities with germ war- warfare of its own. Over a period lasting 20 years from 1949 to 1969, well-intentioned officials working for the Department of Defense repeatedly doused whole cities across America with chemicals, bacteria, and fungal spores that they were pretty sure would be mostly harmless. Maybe. Maybe. Look, we're not 100%. We're just going to sprinkle this in their alfalfa fields and see what happens. One of the earliest of more than 200 tests took place in September 1950 when a U.S. Navy ship near San Francisco hoisted its fire hose and sprayed tons of bacteria into a bank of fog that was drifting over the city. Later, (laughs) these kooks, I cannot. Later, government officials checked in with the local hospitals to see how many people had been affected. It turned out to be thousands, and one of them may have died as a result, but the human experiments kept going. To get more data about how a biological attack might spread, project planners dusted rural areas with potentially carcinogenic, carcinogenic. Yeah, you said it perfect. Did I? Carcinogenic cadmium, including several schools in Minneapolis. They went with a cover story that the military was experimenting with shrouding cities in smoke screens in case of a nuclear attack. In New York in 1966, agents threw light bulbs filled with bacteria onto the subway tracks to see if the whoosh of air from the trains would spread the contaminants. It turns out it would. (laughs) Samples dropped at 14th Street were found as far away as 59th Street Station. The bacteria... Baculus globigi. Yep. A, <laughs> yep, that one. A pathogen that causes food poisoning, my worst nightmare, also coated the clothes, skin, and hair of subway passengers. None of the people who were exposed knew what was going on, and nobody was ever punished for those human experiments. I have thoughts, feelings, and emotions about Please, all of this. It's time. That's my six of them. So you have got all the time in the world. I am putting a proper call out to those from the states, United States, that listen to our podcast. And I'm no throwing rocks in glass houses here. I'm not saying that Australia or anywhere else in the world is no worse or better, but. Just hearing that list of six, does it not piss you off? Does it like, I don't know, 
it erodes the trust when you yes. hear how at least prevalent the and the cavalier attitude to experimenting on humans and it's not that long ago i just no, can't I know. believe it it shocks my mind yeah that that it couldn't it's not like just one person who's a, who's psychotic or no. evil has decided this there are there would have been hundreds of people who would have been part of these experiments just going okay i guess yeah Sure, sure. That's yeah. what I was told to do. What are these light bulbs filled with? All right, <laughs> chuck them on the subway tracks. No worries. Well, yeah. yeah. Anyway, just curious. Did, that's a fucked up world that yeah. we live in, where people do that to each other. Correct. Can I also just uh, circle back um, and welcome the word uh, cavalier to the podcast? Very Ooh. nice. A cavalier Ooh. attitude. That is. Um, yeah, that's a, a phrase word. I'm going to use this week, no doubt. I'm sure one of my students will do something that will allow me to say they have a cavalier attitude and they'll be like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, and again, I want to be real clear here. Yes. Off my high horse. Your hobby horse. Yeah, my hobby horse. (laughs) Hobby, 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 hobby. I'm not saying that Australia hasn't mistreated, you know, indigenous. Not at all. Torres Strait Islanders and the crazy shit that we did. Yes. Uh, is is horrific. So I just I'm. Uh, I sense it. I feel your I feel your frustration. I do. Uh, I feel your pain. I and just that was, really. Yeah. I was really putting a target on the US there because that was just specific to yeah, that. Of course. Um, and we know that it's not just them. No, exactly. Now I want to stay with the US, okay? <laughs> because I want to stay there. I want to stay in the USA. Specifically, I want to stay in San Francisco. Because I have got a scientific deep dive of our pop culture reference of the week, Dominic. Ooh. When I was going through and picking these uh, scientific experiments, these government experiments on human uh, test subjects, all of those uh, examples were mm. people being exposed to toxins or being injected with toxins or pl- polonium and plutonium and blah, blah, blah. Every onium there is. Correct. When I was reading through, you know, obviously some of the the symptoms and the devastating effects they have on your body, it really only made me think of one thing. And it is a frame in a film that has stuck with me since the 90s. And that is, of course, the sequence in the film The Rock with Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage where they're dealing with VX gas. Now, this VX gas in the film, you'll see on our socials, (coughs) they're shiny green balls filled with a gel. And if one of those gels hits the ground, the glass balls hits the ground and the VX gas is released, bad things happen. Mm -hmm. In the film, a person goes into a chamber where one of these is kept, one drops on the ground, the whole crew jump out of that room and promptly close the big cell door. And there is a small glass window One of the guys is trapped inside and he puts his arms up to the window and you can see his face and then his whole face just starts to blister in these huge welts and then he like pukes on the glass and then he's cucked it. So that was really resonating in my mind the whole time. So I had a bit of a look, see, and found some some scientific information about whether or not that film depicted VX gas in a scientifically accurate manner. Oh. 
Here we go. Here we go. On February 13th, 2017, Kim Jong-nam, I'm circling, trust me, I'll get to the rock, the half-brother of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un was murdered at a Kuala Lumpur airport with VX nerve agent, a particularly terrible chemical weapon. Have you heard of this story, Kate? No, I haven't. I know this story. Okay. Unbelievable. Maybe maybe we should do an episode. Oh, no. Okay. It's so good. No, we can. Okay. Now, in an an assassination plot that is stranger than fiction, the deadly chemical agent was delivered as a binary compound. Two women, allegedly believing they were part of a prank reality show, smeared two chemicals, one after the other, on Kim's face. These two chemicals reacted to create the lethal dose that killed Kim. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even know that. And I read it's, that before, but I didn't know that that's like the whole, wow, crazy. wild yeah. story. And the footage, oh, my goodness, just everything. It's such a fascinating story. Okay. Well, that's a little, I guess, tidbit about it. Now, VX gas, VX, VX chemical compound, appears in several TV shows and movies, from Spooks, the 11th hour, and it's a disaster, but its best-known example is the 1996 film The Rock. Now, we've been over this time and time again, 1996, 7, 8, and 9, arguably the peak of cinema. Golden. End. End of story. I don't want to talk to anybody else about it. Please don't at me. That's the time period. And The Rock was one of those movies that I just adored. Now, the movie centres on a planned terrorist attack from the island of Alcatraz off the coast of San Francisco. To stop the rogue general, Frank Hummel, played by Ed Harris, the FBI enlists the help of a chemical super nerd, Stanley Goodspeed. It's actually Godspeed. Nicolas Cage and federal prisoner and former SAS operative, John Mason, played by Sean Connery. While the movie takes some artistic licence with the deadly compound, it gets much of the science correct. So, how well did the movie get the science right and is the compound used to kill Kim Jong-nam as deadly as the show makes it out to be? Now, one thing which I made an error about earlier, I'm correcting it now, VX is not a gas as depicted in the show, um, but a thick, heavy oil that is tasteless and odourless with the consistency of honey. Now, as this is Sam Goodspeed, now, his character's name is Stanley Godspeed. So that is two, they've said it wrong both times. Or is it Goodspeed? Is it Goods or God? I thought no, it was it's God. Godspeed. It's Godspeed. That's what I thought. Now, as, as Stanley Godspeed says in the movie, it's one of those things we wish we could disinvent. And he is not far from the truth. As Godspeed describes, VX was a failed pesticide. And that, then here is where this story becomes a little bit interesting. The chemical was discovered in 1952 while two scientists were doing pesticide research. The two chemists realised the chemical was so toxic that the company that they worked for, Imperial Chemical Industries, ceased research in 1955. There was no way to safely handle the pesticide for agricultural use. Now, is VX as bad as the movie The Rock makes it out to be? The movie does take some artistic liberties granted but the short answer it's hollywood baby but the short answer is yes 
while it will not melt your face or cause boils to erupt all over your body, something far worse happens. The victim suffocates to death. The nervous system is an a, this is going to get a touch sciencey, so I do apologize for those just chilling out, but bear with me. The nervous system is an electrochemical network. Electrical signals propagate along the neural wiring, but they are not all connected to each other. Instead, they are separated by gaps or synapses. Basics, you know, neurology, biology 101. As electrical signals cannot propagate across this gap, special chemicals called neurotransmitters are needed. They traverse the gaps or synapses that exist between two neurons or a neuron and an effector cell. Effector cells respond to a stimulus and affect some change. One neurotransmitter, one of the words that's in science, it binds to receptors on the outside of muscle fibers and initiates a contraction. Once that has done its job, an enzyme called something else science breaks the molecule into something else science and another thing that's silence. <laughs> the, <laughs> choline and acetate. There we go. Science and science. Science and science, science, baby. It does so many sciencey things. Don't worry about it. <laughs> this enzyme is abundantly available to clear away free acetyl, acetyl, acetylcholine. Acetylcholine. Yeah. Science. When the <laughs> chemical signals removed, the muscle calls cells relax. Now, VX and other neurotoxins work by chemically binding to the science word, inhibiting the enzyme. Thus, the victims asphyxiate. That word I can do. They're unable to draw breath as their muscles remain continually contracted. Yeah. Now, it, it gets a bit sense. worse. This chemical is ridiculously toxic. Not only does a little go a long way, but it also persists in the body for long periods. According to the National Ac Academies of Sciences, <laughs> a lethal dose can be as low as 0.04 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. It will take at least 2.7 milligrams, that is a speck, placed on exposed skin to kill a person weighing 68 kilograms or 150 pounds. One drop about 10 milligrams is believed to be the lethal dose for most people. Wow. That's not much. No. Mm. And this is so reminding me of all the uh, supposed or acclaimed poisonings from mm. Russian government and yes. the assassination attempts. And that's a whole nother. It's a whole nother kettle of fish. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, I also apologise for the sound of me uh, slugging out of a bottle of Canadian Club there. Do going it. Glug, you need glug, it. Glug. You earned it. Now, people exposed to a low or moderate dose of VX may experience some or all of the following signs and symptoms within seconds or hour hours of exposure. Dom, I'm going to do my very best impression of an American pharmaceutical commercial and give you a rapid-fire list of okay. symptoms that you may experience uh, if you've been exposed to VX. Not VX gas, it's not a gas. Mm. Here we go. Abnormally low or high blood pressure, blurred vision, chest tightness, confusion, cough, diarrhea, drooling, difficulty breathing, drowsiness, eye pain, eye tearing, excessive sweating, fast heart rate, headache, increased urination, muscle, muscle cramps, nausea, vomiting, and or abdominal pain, rapid breathing, runny nose, shortness of breath, slow heart rate, small pinpoint pupils, tremors, weakness, or wheezing. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. 
was hot and I love the wheezing. Thank you. I ran out of breath to do an actual wheeze, but that was close enough. Now, even a small drop of VX on the skin can cause sweating and muscle twitching uh, where VX has touched the skin. Exposure to large doses of VX uh, by any route may result in the following harmful health effects. Loss of consciousness, cardiac arrest, possibly leading to death, coma, convulsions, paralysis, respiratory failure, possibly leading to death, seizures and twitching. Oh, just an occasional just twitch. Just a couple. <laughs> that's, that's top of mind. <laughs> but I also really enjoyed the cardiac arrest, possibly leading to death, and the respiratory failure, possibly leading to death. Basically, what I'm trying to say, folks, if you find yourself in a situation where someone offers you a pinprick of VX, say no. Yeah, say no to drugs. Say no to pesticides, baby. <laughs> say yeah. no. Yeah. If you find yourself covered in a sticky, odorless, clear liquid, say goodbye. Say no. Say no. <laughs> that made me think of other things. But okay, yeah. that for all of our regular listeners, uh, and I seem to have pushed through that faster than I thought. It's perfect. That's but okay. it's great timing because now... For our Patreon, every time, I feel like it's at the point now where it's just a joke. I cannot say patrons. Let's just call them brickies. Brickies. Our brickies, they're going to get, I've got a couple of extra little stories for you. But the moral of the story is if you feel sick, (laughs) go to a doctor uh if you trust them okay if someone offers you money to inject you with something say no no is that a better one okay because you know we want to leave with a strong moral (laughs) of this story that's what everyone's always here for what am i going to learn and how what's the moral of the story those are the ones for you yeah I was going to say, stay away from medical trials, and this coming from me who puts his <laughs> name up in a medical trial. Every sexually transmitted <laughs> disease medical trial there is. Yeah. But do you know what? How what? about you just all thank me for my mm. sacrifice? So if they're if they're experimenting on me, taking one for the team. You are, and I appreciate that. And Dominic, do you know what else I appreciate? You joining me for my government experiments episode, which was a gloss over. The Americans and what they were doing in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And go and watch The Rock if you haven't. Yeah, well done, Kate. That was It was a bit of fun. It was a bit of fun and it was a lot to handle. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Dark shit there, folks. Okay, if you want to hear a little bit about um, Japan, Japan's Unit 731, um, which I'll tell you about, or the Burke and Hare murders, go on over to patreon where you can uh, sign up for a couple of bucks and listen to me tell you those stories otherwise goodbye (laughs) see ya (laughs) fuck off see ya (laughs) love you guys thank you like and subscribe give us five stars that's a wrap big shout out to everyone for tuning in to shit and bricks Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us. Plus, you can find extra little nuggets on our socials. Next week, we'll be back talking more shit, so do not forget to tune in. And remember to wipe, flush, and wash your hands. Goodbye. Goodbye.